You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. So we're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Why don't I pray and then we're going to get into God's word. Father, we thank you that in the name of Jesus, because of what you've done through your son, through the cross, through the resurrection, through the promises that you've given, that we get to gather together today. We do thank you for the shade that you've put over us. We thank you for the warm weather that we have. And even though it's hot, it's not that hot. Lord, we thank you for the word that we can freely open, Bibles that we've been blessed with, without fear, to learn, to grow, and to be spoken to from the scriptures today. So God, I ask that your spirit would go ahead of me and behind me, or that you would take the, the feeble studying that I've done and turn it into something great for the name of Jesus and to minister to our souls today. For we know that there are many burdens many burdens that have been brought here this morning. And there's only one burden you desire to leave us with, and it is easy and light. So give us understanding of what that is. Lord, I thank you that you are God, and we have the privilege of calling you Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Uh, If you have your Bibles out, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. If you need a Bible this morning, just go ahead and raise your hands. We've got some awesome ushers who'd be happy to uh, hand them out to you. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, which is roughly two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Or you can always use the table of contents because it's uh, great that it's there and it can be used. Uh, We've been going through a series titled Unexpected Messiah unexpected Messiah. And the reason why we've called it unexpected Messiah is because as we look at the gospel of Matthew, and the gospel again is, it's just the good news. It's the good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to live a perfect life, to die for the sins of humanity, to be raised again to new life, and then to ascend up into heaven with the promise to return and to be intimately involved in our lives here now and for eternity. And we call it unexpected Messiah because the Jewish people had always been waiting for a rescuer, someone to redeem them, someone to put things back in order the way that it should be, but they didn't expect the person of Jesus. I'm not sure if it wasn't because he was tall enough. I'm sure it didn't have to do with uh, the fact that He wasn't royalty. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't come with earthly power. He didn't come as a conquering war hero. He certainly didn't come to remove the oppression of Rome from the Jews. And so many people missed out on the Messiah simply because they had different expectations of who God really is. And today as we get into Matthew chapter 11, kind of the second half, we're going to look at how God reveals himself to us through Jesus Christ to help us begin to clarify some of those misunderstandings that we may have about God. The things that we've heard or the things we've made up in our mind or the things that have been pushed on us, we're going to go right into the scriptures to see who God truly is. And to give you a starting point of who God truly is, he is someone who relentlessly pursues people over and over again, whether they deserve it or not. And as you know, who of us deserves? None. None of us are deserving. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, here's how it goes. God had prophesied. He had told his people, I will send you a rescuer. And he does. His name is Jesus. And God's Son leaves his throne in heaven to come to earth fully human and fully God, and he is born as a baby. He grows up no different than us, except 
that he is without sin. He never does anything wrong. And yet he gets hurt or he experiences sickness or he knows what it's like to lose a parent young. He knows how it is to be made fun of. He understands loss. He understands the difficulties of life. And yet he lives perfectly. He was willing to suffer in a body like ours, experiencing the pains of this world for the purpose of meeting us where we are because he is lowly and humble. And when Jesus turns 30 years old, his heavenly father says, it's time to begin your public ministry. And Jesus is baptized by his cousin John, John the Baptist, who we covered quite a bit about last week. And from there, Jesus is led by the Spirit of God that inhabits him into the wilderness where he fasts from food for 40 days and 40 nights. And being weak in the body, the devil then comes to Jesus to tempt him, ultimately to try to get him to take the easy way out. And Jesus does not use his divine power to resist the temptation of the devil, but simply applies the word of God in right ways and says no to Satan. From there, God sends him out into Judea, which is the region of Galilee around Jerusalem, and Jesus begins preaching the same message that his cousin was preaching. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your wickedness. For the kingdom of heaven is near, and I want to be in relationship with you. This is the message that Jesus came preaching. And he didn't just come speaking words. He came doing what we should all do when we call ourselves people of faith. Because faith without works is what? It's dead. You can say all you want, but if you don't do it, it doesn't mean a thing. And what does Jesus do? He comes with power. He heals the blind and gives sight to them. He unclogs the ears of the deaf. He casts out demons from those who are oppressed and and possessed. He heals the sick. He makes the paralyzed walk. He even raises the dead to new life. Jesus does all these things not because he wants to be known as a miracle worker, but to show this region that had been sitting in darkness waiting for a rescuer, that the light had finally come. Jesus reveals that God is compassionate, that he pursues people relentlessly, that he's willing, even after being rejected time and time again in the earth's history, that he hasn't stopped pursuing you and others like you. If you're here today, it's a testimony that he's pursuing you because he loves you. And the thing that is most important for your life is to know who God is through his son, Jesus Christ. As we covered last week, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner or the precursor to the Messiah. His full job was simply to announce that the Messiah had come. And does John do this? Oh, wholeheartedly he does it. And he gets a lot of attention. The Bible says he's super hairy, that he wears camel skins, he eats locusts and honey, and he lives in the desert like a weird guy. And he's preaching this message, repent of your sins and turn to God. And people, whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, are like, hey, we got to go see this guy, John. We got to go see what's under that tent on Carlsbad Village Drive. I hear they got free coffee and donuts. We might as well just go. (laughs) And for whatever reasons, they come out in droves to hear John. And John ends up pointing Jesus out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, and yet by many of the religious leaders of his day, he was accused of being possessed by a demon. And Jesus knows that there is tremendous rejection of his lordship happening in that region, so much so that he says this, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 16. 
talking about his cousin John and the response that up to this point they've received, Jesus says, but what shall I like in this generation, this group of people? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions, kids saying, hey, throw on iTunes, drop the Spotify track that I like. And Jesus says, we played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, who is Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. In short, this is what Jesus is saying to that generation of people, which also speaks to us today. I am the best cook the universe has ever seen. And you're starving and malnourished. I want to make you something. How about barbecue? Oh, thanks, Jesus, but I'm a vegetarian. How about salad? You know, I don't really do the green thing. How about fried tofu? Yeah, I don't really like the texture. It's kind of mushy. How about cinnamon toast cereal? No, it's got too much sugar. And Jesus is saying, listen, I will pursue you to no end, but at the end of the day, you will have to respond to me. You will have to respond. And that response will either have to be repentance and entering into a relationship with me or rejection and continuing to follow your own ways unto destruction. It's important for us to understand that Jesus, although he talks about hard things, is hardly ever, and I say hardly ever because there are a few times when he is, but hardly ever angry with people and more brokenhearted, grieving, sorrowful, knowing that he is the light of the world, that he is the answer that people need, that he is the only way, truth, and the life. And when people say no to him, they don't understand the gravity of their rejection. And so Jesus begins our text this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. You ready to get into the word? All right, four people. Here we go. Verse 20. Then he, meaning Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. That word rebuke is like to call out, to bring to their attention, not to let something slide by. And he says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, remember Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now at first glance, myself included, boy, does it seem like Jesus is pretty upset with people? It does seem like he's upset with people. But in the Greek, this word woe, umi, it means to be grieved to the soul, to experience deep sorrow and broken heartedness. Jesus is not angry. He's weeping over the rejection of his lordship. His desire is to see people come to him so that they can receive the fullness of life. And yet he has to speak the truth. And here's what was happening. Remember how he said that Jesus was bringing sight to the blind? And he was causing the deaf to hear? And the lame, the crippled, the paralyzed to walk? And here's how Jesus did that ministry. There were lepers 
who had to ring bells wherever they went so that people could scatter and stay a long ways away from them. I'm not joking when I say this. We are literally living in a society where people, if you're walking down the sidewalk, certain people will go like this and walk completely around you if you don't have a mask on. I literally watched a couple the other day. I didn't have a mask on. I was walking down the sidewalk. They stepped into the street to get away from me. But isn't that what happens when we try to get away from Jesus? We're literally stepping into oncoming traffic without realizing what we're doing. And Jesus is calling to the people. He said, hey, there is a purpose for these miracles. I don't want you to simply go, wow, amazing, love it, great worship, okay message. What do you want for lunch? No, Jesus is saying, listen, Chorazin by the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida on the opposite side of the shore, Capernaum, where I do a lot of my work. I came to you with the power of God to bring healing to others so that you would understand, oh my goodness, the time that we have been waiting for has come. And in God's grace, it's come to me even though I'm not deserving, even though I'm not worthy, even though I could never do anything to earn or deserve it, it came to me. And yet Jesus was largely rejected. Now Jesus uses some pretty strong terms here. He says, hey, had these works, had I come in the time of Tyre and Sidon, those were two coastal cities, mostly known uh, in the area of the Philistines, kind of the sworn enemies of the Israelites, if you know your Bible. They were idol-worshiping cities, and Jesus says, hey, if I had healed people like I'm healing now in that city, oh, they would have repented by now. They would have been in sackcloth and ashes. And I'm not going to go deep into the chapter, but do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was a prophet of God who touted himself on being a very good prophet, someone who knew how to speak God's word. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah goes, no way, no how. That place is so wicked. I'm definitely not going there. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your mercy. I'm going to play judge. I'm getting on a cruise ship and heading somewhere else. And the story goes that Jonah is thrown overboard because of a great storm that was sent by God. He's swallowed by a fish, spends three days in the belly of this fish, repents of his sin, says, God, I'll do what you ask, gets spit out on the shore, goes to Nineveh, smelly, dirty, telling his story, tells these wicked, sinful people, hey, repent or your city's going to be destroyed in 40 days. And what happens? What happens? They repent. Did God do any miracles? He didn't. He simply brought the message of, hey, turn from your wickedness. Turn from the life that you've been living. And I have grace and mercy abundant for you. And it says that they dressed themselves in sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of mourning. Mourning for the life that they had been living. And it says that God relents from the disaster that was to be on Nineveh. And they come to Jesus. Now it's Old Testament, so Jesus wasn't alive then, but their faith is counted to them as righteousness as it was to Abraham, which means they come to Jesus. Because their response was repentance. But it's because their God loves them and pursued them wholeheartedly and didn't give up on them. It's a message that we need to hear today. I don't know some of you and some of your stories, but someone here needs to hear. God is not going to stop pursuing you no matter how bad your life is, how bad you've been, the bad things that have happened to you, your circumstances. He's going to continue to pursue you. The power of the light of God would have been enough to turn Sodom. I don't have to explain Sodom to you. 
But this is what Jesus is telling this generation, not just the generation that he was in, this generation now. I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to know who I am for who I truly am, not just what you've heard. So we continue in verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have given that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes or to children. Even so, Father, for it seemed good to your sight. Now, what's really interesting is Jesus has been rebuking these cities. And in the very next verse, in verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus answered. Who in the world is he answering? Anybody? How about who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to his heavenly Father. Now, we don't see God the Father's words written down here, but what we learn is that Jesus was in constant communion and intimate relationship with his heavenly Father. They were always on the same page. They were always having conversation. Jesus was always doing the Father's will and not his own will. And notice what Jesus says. He says, thank you. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is important. Lord of heaven and earth means that God the Father is in control of all things and owns all things and is Lord over all things. And Jesus says, thank you. He comes to him with a heart of gratitude specifically for something very interesting. Look what Jesus says. Thank you that you have hidden these things, meaning the truth, the light, the way to eternal life, which is through Jesus, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes or those who are like children. What is Jesus saying here? How many of you have been keeping up with uh, the political mess? One person in all of the mission church. Of you. All right, enough of us, right? Enough of us. It's insane. Unprecedented. There are recommendations being thrown out by different individuals that make no sense whatsoever. And it's because many of these politicians have agendas. And their agendas are selfish. And their agendas are rooted in power. And their agendas are for their own way. And their agendas are not considering the greater community. On and on and on. And here's why I say that. It's like when Jesus says, you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent. He's using this in a negative sense. He's meaning wise and prudent, meaning those who think they have it all figured out. Those who go, I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. Have you seen my business? Have you seen my figure? Have you seen my social media account? Have you seen my track record? I don't need anything else. There's an agenda. And that agenda is self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And Jesus says, to those who have a hard heart toward me, the light is hidden and they are perishing. They are headed towards destruction. Now here's what's insane about God. It's it's hard to fathom. His own people, the Jews, the Israelites, had they ever been hard-hearted toward God? How many times? All the time. And they were considered God's chosen people. And yet how many times did God stop pursuing them? Never. Were there consequences for their actions? Yes. Was there judgment for their sin? Yes. But even in that, did God ever stop pursuing His people? No. God doesn't stop pursuing hard-hearted politicians. God doesn't stop pursuing fake pastors. God doesn't stop pursuing us. He relentlessly chases after us with His love and truth 
so that we can be rescued from what he was warning Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum from, which is the coming judgment, which is right and good because we don't want to live with sin forever. It's necessary, and yet it's very real. Jesus says, Thank you, Father, for hiding these things from the wise and the prudent, but revealing them to babes. Uh, Just so you know, that's not an attractive person, in case you're wondering uh, the Greek. Um, A babe meaning a baby, infant-like or child-like. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus is only available for children? No, of course not. But when it says childlike, when you think of a small little baby, who are they dependent upon? They're dependent upon the mother and hopefully a father. And without a mother or a father or someone in to take the role of nurturing, they won't survive. They're of need. They're tender. They're gentle. They're willing to receive nourishment because they can't get it on their own. This is what it means to be childlike. There's a story in Acts chapter 8. Uh, how many of you know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? I'm sure all of you, uh, probably a main Bible story for you. And all the kids are like, Dad, what's a eunuch? Well, look at that. Sunday school's over. <laughs> Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. There's a man named Philip. He was a disciple of Jesus, not one of the twelve, but he was a disciple of Jesus. And after Jesus ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit upon his disciples and he gives them giftings. And Philip is known as the evangelist because he has a way about him in sharing the good news, which is simply that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died for the sins of mankind. He rose again from the dead, and he's coming back someday to return us to our home where we belong forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And Philip is told by the Holy Spirit, hey, there's this Ethiopian who's in a high and powerful position And the Ethiopian government, as a matter of fact, he's in charge of all the money for the country. He's in a chariot right now heading down this road. I want you to go catch him and then explain the gospel to him. Well, that's weird because the man's in a chariot. And I don't think it doesn't mention anything about Philip being a track star. But somehow, through the power of the spirit, Philip like catches up to the chariot. And Philip's like there, right? He's like, hey. And the Ethiopian's like, hey. And Philip's like, do you understand what you're reading right now? And the Ethiopian's like, I know it's from the prophet Isaiah, but I don't know what it means. I wish someone would tell me. And Philip goes, that's why I've been sent. And he gets into the chariot. And for however long, Philip explains how what the prophet Isaiah was talking about from the Old Testament, long before Jesus was ever born and came to earth, that there would be a rescuer and a redeemer who wanted to bring grace and salvation to all of humanity. And hey, man, who you're reading about in Isaiah is this man named Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And this Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the Bible but didn't understand, who had maybe seen the tent, didn't know what to expect, and just showed up who was hurting and came because maybe there might be something hopeful to grab onto today. And Jesus goes, that's what it looks like to be a little babe. That's what it looks like to be childlike, to be open. Maybe not knowing all the answers, but knowing you're missing something and I don't have what it takes to fill that void. And the great part of that story is it doesn't describe whether it's a lake or a pond or a puddle. But the Ethiopian, I mean, keep in mind, this is the Middle East. He's like, hey, there's some water. What's keeping me from being baptized? And Philip goes, nothing. Let's do it. And right there, that man gives his life to Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like when the Spirit of God takes the blinders off of us to go, oh, no, I have been missing out. I have been living life selfishly. And I've fallen short of the standard that God has given. 
Oh, help me, Lord. And God goes, yes, the gospel is for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Now come with me. I invite you to come in. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to play the part. Your humble spirit is enough for me to work with. Come with me. Everyone is invited to know God. I want you to say it with me. Everyone is invited to know God. Who's invited? Who is invited? This is so important for our theology. And if you don't know what theology is, it's just the totality of the study of God. Too often we hear, hey, there are, there are only elect people. There are only people that God has chosen will be saved and He's chosen people to be damned to hell. That is not true. How could a loving Savior who would give His life only come to die for a few? No, He pursues all people and the invitation is for everyone. It's on us how we respond. There is no one who is left out of God's kingdom because they were neglected by Him. There are only those who are left out of God's kingdom because they rejected the Savior. That is important for us to understand, to have a full picture of who God is. Everyone is invited to know God. Jesus uses a lot of analogies about dinner feasts or wedding feasts or parties. And in Luke chapter 14, there is a master of a house. It's called a parable. It's a Uh, Not a true story, but it's a common theme that everyone in his day could understand to illustrate a deep spiritual point. There's a master of a house, and he sends out an invitation to a select few people to come to a dinner party. And when that dinner party comes, he says, hey, everything's ready. The dinner's ready for you. I've got the barbecue. I've got the salad. I've got the cinnamon toast crunch. I've got the fried tofu. It's all there for you. Come on in. And people start giving him excuses. Hey, I'm too busy. I got my job over here. I'm too busy. My kid's about to go to college. I'm too busy. I'm making too much here. I'm too busy. I don't have a job, so I'm feeling sorry for myself over here. I'm too busy. Over and over again, it's an excuse. And it says that the master of the house is not happy. So he gets his servant and he says, Hey, go find the the blind, the lame. Go find the sick and the poor and bring them to my house for a dinner party. The servant goes, Okay. So he begins to go out and to tell others about this party and to invite them in. And some come in, but the servant goes back to the master and he goes, hey, we still have room. And at this point, the master goes, listen, I want you to crawl under bushes and bridges. I want you to go into places that nobody wants to look for anybody. And I want you to invite anybody that you can find. And in Luke 14, 22 and 23, it says this, and the servant said, master, It is done, meaning I've invited a lot of people as you commanded, but there's still room. Then the master who is representative of God says to the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. This is the God we worship. He doesn't want more square footage like cage-free chickens. I have chickens. I don't know what it means to be cage-free. They have to have a certain square footage around them to be considered cage-free. God doesn't want cage-free Christians. He wants us packed in tight together so there's no room left in His house. That's how many people He wants. And there's enough. There's enough grace to go around. There's enough room in the kingdom of heaven for us all to be overwhelmingly satisfied in Christ for eternity. And yet people are saying no. And Jesus says, come into my house. Come into my house. Why is he so obsessed with pursuing people? Why won't he just let us have what we want, which is not him? Here's why. Because as human beings, myself included, we can't fully understand the judgment that is coming. Do you know what hell is? It's the absence of the good presence of God. Think about today. How many of you are a little warm sitting in your seats? 
I, I'm like, my arms are sweating up here. It's warm. But is it crazy, crazy hot? No. There's a nice little breeze. There's 450-pound barrels of water attaching to tents so it doesn't fly off. You have breath in your lungs. You're sitting in chairs. You could walk four blocks that way and be looking at the Pacific Ocean and the grandeur of God's creation. You can walk that way and go to Poyos Marias and taste the delicious chicken, unless you're a vegetarian. Whoever said that over here? They do have veggie tacos. Thank you. Oh, to experience God's goodness. We all do. Whether we're part of his family or not, make no mistake, we have been given much grace. I was talking to a friend. He's part of our safety team here at the Mission Church. And him and his wife just had their first baby. And uh, Jocelyn and I got to go over to their house about six days after this little guy was born. And he teared up and he goes, I didn't know. I didn't know that you could love something so much. And that's how God feels about you. That's how God feels about the people driving by. That's how God feels about the cocaine addict that's sleeping off their high. That's how God feels about the sexually immoral, those who are sleeping together outside of marriage, and they're ashamed. That's how much God loves us as He pursues us relentlessly. Not looking at, oh, you did this, this, and this, therefore you can't get in anymore. Instead, it's because you've done all those things, it's why I came and died for you. It's why I pursue you. Verse 27, Jesus continues, He says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Now, this is a powerful point by Jesus. First and foremost, Jesus is making some pretty audacious claims. He's saying, hey, if you don't repent from your sin and get in relationship with me, you're not going to make it. You'll be part of the judgment and spend eternity somewhere you don't want to. Whoa, who does this guy think he is? That's a pretty bold claim, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet Jesus makes it clear, all things have been given to me. All things have been given to me by my Father. Remember what Jesus called his Father in that little communion conversation moment? He said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And who is given all of heaven and earth to Jesus? Oh, it's the Father. Jesus owns it all. He is the Messiah and the Savior. And he makes the statement that is powerful. No one knows the Father except the Son. Now that was a big deal for the Jews. Because who did the Jews worship? God. And who did Jesus just say they don't know? That would be offensive. Right? That would be like someone coming into your place of work where you've worked for 25 years and you're an expert in your field and they go, you don't even know what you're talking about. How would you respond? That's a bold statement by Jesus. You don't even know God, but I do. And guess what? No one knows me, the Savior of the world, except the Father and also, those to who I, talking about Jesus, I can reveal who God is to you. Let me tell you something. Jesus came to reveal God to us. Jesus wants to reveal God to us. And here's why. Because we have so many misconceptions about who He is. We've been given so many confusing ideals, whether it's in poor teaching from the pulpit whether it's in fables or stories that we hear, whether it's bad church experiences, whether it's what we read on the internet, whether it's on social media, what we've heard our friends say, what we've grown up with, we often don't understand who God is. And the only one who knows God the Father is Jesus. So the only way we can get to know the Father is through who? It's through Jesus. It's why He came. It's why He relentlessly pursues us. 
want to hit on three points real quick about the character of God that Jesus wants to reveal to us. Jesus embodies God's compassion. So often, depending on how we're brought up or what we hear, all we hear about God is that He is harsh, that all He cares about is rules and regulations, and that He's rigid, and He's just waiting for you to mess up. Aha! Got you, Matt! Caught you! No, Jesus is compassionate. He comes to the broken, the hurting, the lost, the miserable. And He says, Come to Me. I will give you rest. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, there's nothing that I can't overcome. I am compassionate. I long for you to be in relationship with Me. I value you. I want you. Zephaniah chapter 3 Verse 19, in its context, excuse me, verse 17, in its context is so powerful. The nation of Israel has been disobedient. They've been unfaithful. They've walked away from God a million times. And yet God is still pursuing them. And this is what he says about his people. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. And with his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. This is God's pursuit of His people. This is His heart for His people. Are there consequences for sin? Yes, there is. Why? Because He loves us. What kind of parent doesn't discipline their child? God desires to rejoice over us with gladness when we turn and follow Him through responding in repentance. Another characteristic of God that Jesus has come to show us is that God is a visionary. He's a visionary. And I'm not just talking about how He knows the future, which He does. What I'm talking about is, for us, oftentimes we get this sense of like, God, do you even care about my life? Do you even see what's happening? I mean, really, if you were a loving God, you wouldn't have let what happened to me happen to me. And guess what? Those are legitimate feelings because we're emotional people. But if we don't hear the truth of God's word and what Jesus came to reveal to us about who God truly is, is that he has a purpose and a plan for your life, no matter if you're 85 or eight and a half today. He's not finished with you. And we could go Old Testament to New Testament naming men and women who God said, I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for your life. I'm going to use, no God, you can't use me. You don't understand how bad it is. I don't have those giftings. I don't want any. It's not about you. It's for my glory, not yours. And it's to bless my community of people, not just yourself. That purpose, that vision exists for every single person that's sitting under this tent this morning. I may not be able to tell you what it is, but that's the whole purpose of why you need relationship with Jesus and not your pastor. But if you'd like to have us over for dinner, I prefer barbecue. Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. It's a used scripture all the time. You see it on t-shirts or coffee mugs. It's used out of context. Here's what's important about Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. It was written in a season for the Israelites when things were bleak and dark and horrible. Not in a time when they had overcome all their difficulties. They were just getting ready to go into exile. To have their homeland taken from them the holy city of Jerusalem burned with fire and destroyed and to be led captive to a foreign land. And this is what God says about the vision and future he has for his people. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. This is as true for us sitting under this tent today 
as it was for the Israelites heading into exile and slavery over 2,000 years ago. Do you believe that about your God? Do you believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life? And if you're nodding your head yes, are you fulfilling it and giving him the opportunity to fulfill it in you? Are you? Last characteristic and then we'll move on. God is straightforward. This is one of the things I love about God and to be honest with you, I don't like about God. He says it like it is. When he says, I love you, oh, he pursues you passionately. When he says that there will be consequences for sin, darn it, he's right. When he says, be my disciple and you will experience more joy than your circumstances could ever bring you, the Apostle Paul was a testimony to that. But when he says that being my disciple is hard and it looks different from the things that the world pursues, oh, he's right. We didn't get to cover it uh, last week, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 39. If you're taking notes this morning, write that down and spend time in that passage. I'm going to summarize it for you, but spend time in that passage. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's being straightforward with his disciples. Like Pastor Dave talked about, he, uh, he said, hey, I know you've been watching me do ministry, but now I'm going to send you out to do ministry. And here's what it's going to be like. You're going to be out there like sheep among wolves. Go get them. You know what else he says? There will be persecution or in other other ways, there will be trial and pain because you follow Jesus. He also tells them there will be a temptation to worry about your reputation, to worry about what people think of you, how you look, how you sound. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of people. Instead, have a healthy fear of God because he's the only one that you need to stand before at the end of your days. Fear him and follow him. Jesus also tells them, confess God before men, which simply means this. Your Christian life is not meant to be closet Christianity. If you call yourself a Christian on Sunday morning sitting under the tent, you better call yourself a Christian in the workplace when someone asks you a question or when an opportunity is presented to you. That's the point of his disciples being sent out. But it's hard. And yet God is straightforward about how hard it is so that we're not blindsided or that we don't call God must not love me because this isn't... No, he said this would happen. This is why I have to be like a little child and be dependent upon him. Jesus also talks about division. We must be willing to be divided from the things of this world in order to cling to Christ. Not something that's easy to do. And although salvation is not a daily decision, choosing to lose your life for the sake of Jesus is a daily decision. Choosing to pursue what is right instead of the things that make us feel good is a daily decision. These are hard things, but here's the good news. The character of God that Jesus is revealing is that God is straightforward. He's compassionate. He loves you and relentlessly pursues you. He's a visionary. He has a purpose and a plan for your life, and he's straightforward. Guess what, Christian? There are parts of this that's going to be hard, but it's going to be amazing to watch another soul come to Jesus. To watch that hard-hearted person who's lived a life in rebellion come to their knees and worship Jesus. Oh, there is no better feeling. The question is, does that actually stir your heart? Does it actually stir our hearts? We'll finish with this powerful section. Jesus has come to this point This isn't individual little things he's teaching. It's all rising up to this in Matthew chapter 11. Here comes the invitation. He's already talked to people about repenting, responding to his good works, to his might, his power, the sunsets, the little babies in your life, the miracles you've seen, the way he sustains you. He's already told you that if it's been revealed to you, it's because he loves you and he's opened your eyes. 
And he's already told you that the way that you can have relationship with God the Father is through him, the Son. And here's what he says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Who labors and is heavy laden? It's everybody. Labor is indicative of the work that we have to do. The work to be good enough, the work to be pretty enough, the work to have enough money, the work to support our family, the the work to impress others, the work to keep our job, the work to move up in our job. You name it, there is work to be done. Now what Jesus isn't saying is that this is some... uh, some excuse for idleness. No, what he's talking about is we are constantly striving and that striving does what to our bodies, hearts, minds, and souls? It lays waste to us. We become exhausted and tired and weary. How can I keep this pace up? Oh, I can't. What if I make a mistake? Oh, I will. What if someone finds out? I'm sure they are going to. Jesus says, hey, if you labor, I'm inviting you to come to me. If you're heavy laden, heavy laden is the burdens that are placed upon us by others or by circumstances. It could be cancer. It could be a divorce. It could be an accident. It could be a bad financial deal. It could be the sin of your past. It could be sin that was done to you. We are all laboring and we are all heavy laden. And Jesus says, come to me Everyone, this is consistent with his message earlier in the passage. Everyone come to me and I will give you what? I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, this seems like a bit of a contradiction. Come, I'll give you rest. Here's a yoke. Right? If you don't know what a yoke is, in uh, agricultural farming, some people still do it. Most of them use tractors now. But a yoke would be placed around the neck of an ox. And that ox would be hitched to a plow. And then they would drive the ox. And the ox would do the work. It's hard work. And they were yoked. Different kind of yoke, Bjorn. I already see you elbowing your friend. Thank you, though. I appreciate that. That's very thoughtful of you. Yoked. There's still work to be done in the kingdom of God. There's still a field to be plowed. The question is, is it a field that's so hard that you break down and you can't do it? Or is it a field that is difficult, but you're able to? This is the difference between the world's burdens and those being heavy laden and then the yoke of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. What Jesus is saying to those who are weary and heavy laden is he says, hey, I want to be in a forever partnership with you. Jesus wants to be in a forever partnership with you. And here's what that partnership looks like. We are weighed down with everything that we have, barely making it. And Jesus says, hey, Let me take that from you, and I'm going to put it on myself, and I'm going to give you mine. It's easy and light compared to what you're handling. It's easy and light to what you're bearing, because what you're bearing, you can't overcome. Your sin, your pride, your circumstances, your difficulties, your shortcomings, your failings, you can't bear that weight. But I can, and I did, on the cross. This is where Jesus is pointing to the gospel. The grief that you carry, not knowing how to go on. The financial hole that you're in that you don't know how you'll ever get out of. The relational strife that is wreaking havoc in your family that you don't see being healed. Jesus says, let me take that from you. Doesn't mean he'll remove you from it, but he says, let me take the burden and let me place my burden on you. And then Jesus says, let's plow the field together. 
And here's what a good farmer would do. He would take a strong ox and a new ox who hadn't plowed a field before, and he'd yoke them together so that the strong ox could bear the majority of the burden, but the new ox or the young ox could learn right alongside of him without being broken. That's what Jesus desires to do with his people. He just wants to walk with you. He wants to be present with you. And he wants to see you through. It's his promise to give you rest. Uh, Last Saturday, not yesterday, but last Saturday, I was at a birthday party for my son and Kylie Wasaki, his son. They do little birthday parties together because they're a day apart. And I'm sitting there and I get a phone call and it says the Mission Church. And so I answer it. And there's this lady on the other line. She's like, hey, so I'd like to talk to a pastor. We have this service that we're trying to do today. Um, Would you be interested in participating? It's at 7 o'clock tonight and it's um, a vigil for the eight Marines and one Navy corpsman that died. That's four hours. And honestly, I didn't want to do it because it messed with my day. I just wanted to have a day with my family. I just wanted to have a day where I could sit around and relax. I didn't want to be inconvenienced. Anybody else relate to what I'm talking about? Thank you for helping me on that. I didn't want to. And yet as she began to explain, I started going, JC, how selfish are you? Well, pretty selfish. Pretty consistently. And after some back and forth with trying to figure out what in the world was going on, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll come. Do you know how many people should be expecting? She's like, no, I really don't. I show up and there's 800 Marines and their families and they're hurting and they're heavy laden and they're laboring for our country and it could have been them. And then there's the parents and the spouses and the three-month-old little boy of sons and brothers and a dad who died. What the heck am I supposed to say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle in heart gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's what I learned. God is gentle and lowly in heart. How do I know that? Because he left his throne in heaven to come to earth to be with us. And then to die a sinner's death, even though he had no sin, just so that we could be invited to be part of his family. And I didn't know what else to say other than the gospel. Because it's good news. And here's what rest is. It's putting into practice and believing that God's grace is sufficient for you. If I had 10 steps or four steps to give you of, hey, here's how you rest. I'd give it to you, but I don't. It's faith. It's trusting that Jesus is who he said he is. The Father is who he says he is. And his grace is enough to cover wherever you find yourself right now. Grace is simply undeserved kindness. That's what he gave me in that moment. I'm praying that's what he gave families who are hurting in that moment. And Marines who are scared, or friends or family members or spouses who are worried. Here's what rest is rest is an invitation to more of Jesus and less of you. Rest is an invitation to more of Jesus and less of you. When I'm grinding, 
When I'm trying to get to the top, it's all about me. And then when things don't go my way and I get frustrated, who's it all about? Still me. But hey, when I get to serve others, and when I actually put my faith into practice in handing my burdens over to God, not knowing how, what he's going to do with them, it's no longer about me. It's about who? Oh, now it's about Jesus. And when it's less about me and more about him, I fulfill what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30. John chapter 3, verse 30 says this. John's disciples were upset that Jesus' church was growing bigger than their church. His followers were growing in number and John's were waning. And John says this. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I know that that's not rocket science, but sometimes I have to remind myself, I'm not God. Or I have to have my aunt remind me for me. (laughs) I am only here to prepare the way for him. The whole purpose of my life is to point to who? That's it. All the other stuff I'm burdened with really doesn't matter. Now, is there work to be done? You bet there is. But it really doesn't matter. All that matters is my life is to point to Jesus. John continues and he tells his disciples this. You go to the next slide, please. If not, I got to hear. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows, which simply means, hey, no one should steal the groom's thunder, right? It's his day with his bride. I should not be trying to steal God's thunder. I should not be trying to place burdens on myself that I can't handle and try to be like God. Instead, he says, therefore, I am filled with joy at Jesus' success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Rest is an invitation to more of Jesus and less of you. What are you doing with your time? And I'm not talking about reading your Bible 24 hours a day. I'm talking about the time that God gives you to work or to parent or to grandparent or to be a spouse or to be working in the garden or whatever it is. What are you doing with that time? Are you resting in him or are you striving to be God yourself? I'll finish with this. Have you RSVP'd to Jesus' invitation? This invitation of come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. It's a promise. Have you RSVP'd to Jesus' invitation? I was sitting with my wife yesterday, and I said, hey, uh, wedding coordinator lady, um, what's RSVP mean? And she's like, I don't know. It's French. And I was like, no, it's not. And I Googled it. I was like, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Répondez, s'il vous plaît, which simply means reply if you please. Here's what I love about Jesus and his compassion. He doesn't water pour people into his kingdom. He doesn't sneak up on you and sabotage you. He doesn't pull the rug out from under you. He pursues you lovingly and wholeheartedly through compassion, vision, and he's straightforward about what your life can be like in Christ and what your life would be like without him. And he's asking you to respond to the invitation. And the response can only be one of two things. It can be repentance and a relationship with Jesus, or it can be rejection and continuing to live the way that you're living, which will end in judgment. But let me tell you that God pursues you wholeheartedly Because he desires not to see anyone enter into judgment, but instead to be filled with the love of Christ that saves, rescues, and is sufficient for our salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your word is trustworthy and true. We thank you that what we've talked about today, this great invitation is truly for everyone including people here this morning. And I know there are many here who have RSVP'd. They've said yes to Jesus. 
Certainly all of us need to grow. Certainly all of us need to walk more closely and more intimately. There are areas of our life that we need to confess. But Lord, I also know there are some here this morning that or they've not RSVP'd. And the beauty is, is you don't put shame and guilt on them. Instead, you say, today is the day of salvation. My doors are wide open. My arms are beckoning you. Maybe you don't know all of what that entails, but you know you need someone more than yourself and that Jesus is the answer. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you this morning, would you just slip your hand up this morning to say, I want to receive the invitation that Jesus is giving me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I need you. I'm scared. This whole faith thing is believing what I can't fully see, but I'm hurting. I'm broken. I don't have anywhere else to go. Is there anyone else this morning? Father, for those who raise their hands to you, would they know that your grace is sufficient? That they don't need to do anything except receive what you've already done. Give them rest in their souls. Give them direction in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.